So welcome back to the Student Perspective Series on Operant Innovations. Today we are joined by Henry Chauvet-Santa Cruz, who recently graduated from the University of South Florida. So Henry, just to start, can you tell me a little bit about your background up until getting into grad school? Of course, and uh, thank you for having me as well. I'm originally from West Palm Beach, uh, and then for my undergrad, I went to the University of Florida, and I got a double major in criminology and psychology with an emphasis in uh, behavior analysis. And from there, I went and uh, got my master's at USF. That's kind of the short version of, <laughs> of everything. So criminology and psychology with behavior analysis. Is that correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. My mind is like blown. That is like the coolest combination <laughs> of fields. I... I kind of got in this field by accident in a way because I always wanted to be like a like criminal profiler FBI criminal minds type thing or just you know a clinical psychologist so I was always always going to go for the uh, psychology degree and I decided you know throw in the criminology in there as well but my second semester at UF I saw a class called behavior analysis and I was like oh that's like criminal profiling that's perfect that was not the case but I just like really fell in love with it and I had a really good teacher and I found out that I was decent at it and I, I don't know, I really liked it. And it, it was kind of interesting because I'm a triplet and my one of my brothers is diagnosed with autism. So I've always kind of been around ABA because when we were kids, you know, we would go to the clinic with him and we'd be sitting there while he was in the sensory room and we'd be like, well, why can't we go on the, you know, in the ball pit or the, the zip line and we'd be upset, you know? And so I've always been around ABA. My mom was um, studying ABA. So it's always been around and I kind of got back into the field on accident, but it's kind of a happy, you know, happy meeting. I have kind of a similar story with uh, I also have a sibling with autism, and I also remember uh, he, my memories are of occupational therapy, but I remember he got to play on the zip line, and I did not, and I was mm -hmm. very jealous. He's so jealous. Um, <laughs> it's all the time. And even growing up, my mom always used like behavioral interventions. You know, we had like a visual support board and all this different stuff, and I always thought she was just a really strict mom, which maybe she was partly, but... <laughs> Um, it's funny looking back, like those are the things I make for my clients, like the, the chore list or, you know, how to, you know, setting expectations and all those different things. So I've been around it my entire life. Okay. So walk me through, you had this exposure to ABA as a child through your brother and through different supports that your mom used. How did that translate into studying behavior analysis in your undergrad and working in the fields. So I took that first ABA class and yeah. uh, the teacher was actually a student of Dr. Brian Awada. So okay, cool. I offered to be in the lab as a research assistant. And I was for like, I think five semesters, five or six semesters. So I was in it for a while and I just completely fell in love with the field, doing research and being a part of that. And then at the end of my you know, undergrad career, I was deciding on what to do and I applied to some like clinical psych programs and I wasn't like sold on ABA at the time. I don't know why, but um, I went to Dr. Brian Awada and I was like, I have no idea what I want to do. 
And he was like, you should just apply to the master's programs in ABA and see where it takes you. And if it wasn't for that talk that I had with him, I wouldn't be here right now because I, you know, I applied and I got into USF and the rest is history. That's really cool. So when you were doing your master's program, uh, you did not work under Dr. Iwata. Is that correct? No, Dr. Iwata, he actually retired my last semester at UF, um, but then I went to USF for my master's. So I, I haven't spoken to him since. I should send him an email, but um, you know, saying thank you for that talk. You can send but him this podcast. I, hey, I might, honestly. He'll be like, who are you? But um, I hope not. Yeah, it was really all because of him that I'm here. But um, then I found, you know, mentors at USF. Dr. Miltenberger became my new mentor, along with some of the doc students there. And they just, I don't know if at FIT, how it works at FIT. Do you guys have a thesis at FIT? Yes, we do have a thesis. We don't get our advisor until about a year in, though. Okay. Um, that's kind of the same with us. Okay. Well, no, maybe a little less, because at the end of our first semester, we do like a, a group thesis proposal as like a project to kind of help us practice and get us thinking about what we want to be doing. And we have to think of ideas and then we meet with different advisors to see who fits, you know, with our research interests. And then we get our advisor, I think our second semester is when okay. we start. We go, we get, you know, we're in a lab and we start talking about everything. And that's like the, the best part in my opinion. That's, mm -hmm. that's really awesome. Uh, and interesting. I did kind of a little bit of a similar project just in we had to design a research project, but it was one paper. It was individual. Like I haven't touched it in like a year, <laughs> honestly. So um, that's just kind of interesting to see that's kind of similar, but also very different. So you were matched with Dr. Milton Berger, right? Yes. We kind of ranked who we wanted and I put him at the top and yeah. I was lucky to get him. Uh, so when you went into meeting with him, did you already have a topic in mind or what was that process like? So I kind of started thinking of ideas like really early on in grad school because they told us about it. Um, you know, when we first started, you know, start thinking about ideas and kind of they kind of gave us the general summary of what we were going to be doing. And I just whenever I had an idea, I would just jot it down. And I'm kind of like very uh, anal about that. Like, you know, if I think of something, I have to write it down or I'm going to forget it. Um, so our teachers told us that, you know, it's a master's program. So whatever your idea is has to be attainable and has to be able to be completed, you know, at the master's level and in the time that we have. So don't do anything too crazy, essentially. It's not, you know, a PhD dissertation. Um, not that they shied us away from having a really cool idea, but they kind of wanted us to have our expectations where they should be. And, um, you know, I, I, we could have done a replication of a past study or, you know, uh, you know, a complete replication or changed it a little bit, but I really wanted to like do something on my own and kind of make it my own. And we learned a lot about how BST behavioral skills training was used to teach different safety skills like guns or firearm safety, fire safety, poison safety, and abduction prevention. And the abduction prevention part was always the most interesting to me. Uh, and the way that they designed the experiments was so intriguing, like kind of setting, you know, in layman's terms, setting kids up and having a, a, a fake stranger come in and 
present a lure and seeing how they react and then training them and then doing that again. And it all just, it, honestly, it sounded kind of fun, but it's just so interesting that, that it was effective. You know, all the research was showing that this was an effective way to teach kids this safety skill. So I definitely knew I wanted to do a safety skill, but I had all these grandiose ideas at the beginning and I had to really water them down because I was like, uh, okay, what is like the biggest safety threat to children right now? And it's, in my opinion, one of the biggest threats is like school shootings and how to stay safe during that. So I was like, okay, how could I teach that? And that's just, you know, such a huge and epic, you know, of upper proportions research experiment that I was like, there's no way that can happen. Um, but I should still do safety skills. And I was like, maybe virtual reality or something with electronics. And I just, like I said, it watered down eventually to teaching online gaming safety skills. So my thesis is, or was, uh, using behavioral skills training to teach online gaming safety skills. So essentially we were presenting lures to the participants while playing video games and seeing how they reacted, uh, essentially being like, oh, where are you from? Are you a boy or a girl? Uh, what's your parents' name? And, you know, we would ask those questions, a couple, you know, and get whatever data we needed. And eventually we would train them on the proper safety responses. And then we would ask them again after the training. And it, you know, it proved to be effective. So it was just, that's kind of like the, the fast track version of what happened. But from the, uh, from thinking of the idea to the end, that is, that is how it looked. I think that's so cool, both to hear the process and also just your project. So the way that I became familiar with your thesis project was I attended a conference where you presented on your project. I remember like looking around the audience as you were presenting and so many people were just taking all these notes. And if I'm remembering correctly, you had a lot of audience engagement in terms of question asking. It just shows this is a really important topic. I just think it's really cool that you looked into it. It's super, I thought the same thing. And thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. When I was up there, I didn't really see the audience because I was like in a blackout daze, just focused on getting the words out. But you're right. I, I had, once I finished and I saw the looks in the crowd, it was just so like reinforcing. And I was like, okay, I, I want to present more. This is so much fun. And answering the questions and feeling like I just knew everything about my study. It just was a really good feeling. But um, at the same time, I don't personally think that my idea was that crazy or that out there. You know, I'm assuming we're, you know, I'm 24. Uh, we're, we're probably this, very close to the same age. We grew up with video games and, you know, the beginning of social media. I don't know if you, like me and my friends would go on like Omegle and chat roulette and all this crazy stuff when we were kids. And we saw crazy things and strangers are will say and do whatever they want online and even now when i'm with a client and they're playing roblox i'll see people saying the most outlandish things you know to children and it's really scary so i, I just found it so interesting how no one had really done research on you know the online portion of it with safety skills because there's a lot of abduction uh safety research but not on the online format so it was just, I was like, okay, well, I have to do this if no one else is really looking at it. Yeah, I think it's super important. I am the same age as you, but I had very strict parents and wasn't even allowed to Google. I, I had access wow. to like very specific websites. Everything was password protected. 
to do homework, my parents would have to put in their password and then sit and watch me while I was on the internet. So same age, but very different experiences with the internet growing up. So and um, you know, my mom was really strict too. She tried doing stuff like that, but I think we would, we broke her out of that. I don't know how we got out of that, but you know, I didn't have social media till I was in high school. So I, I did, you know, I didn't have a cell phone till I was in high school either. It, it was either me watching my friends or doing it at a friend's house, but regardless, it's still happening. It was happening back then. It's definitely still happening now, especially, you know, with TikTok and all these even newer social media things that are so addicting. Anyone that's listening to this, just go in the comment section of any social media that you're looking at and you'll see really crazy things that I would not want any child to see, especially a child that has an even harder time of distinguishing whether something is okay or not okay or safe or not safe. So and not to diminish my idea, you know, it's, I thought it was very crazy that no one had done it before, but I'm very happy to have been able to provide research in that field. And I really want to see more of it too. It's just so, it's such a lucrative field. There's so many different things you can research and experiment on. And especially with technology, there were other presentations at this conference that we were at about, you know, using virtual reality. And you mentioned it a minute ago, like there's a lot of things that we can do. Maybe we don't do them because we're behavior analysts and not computer science experts, but yep. some opportunities for collaboration. <laughs> for sure. I think I'm lucky too, because I grew up playing video games. So I kind of knew my way around everything. And you're right. You know, I'm making it sound easy. It really was not easy to do this study. I had, I don't know why I thought it was going to be so easy, but I had to have a good amount of research assistants playing with me and they all had to act like strangers and they had to change their name every single time or you know, if they had a technical difficulty, it would just like throw everything against the wall. And there was a lot of deception involved with the children. I, it was pretty painstaking at times, but that was also the best part of it was whenever we'd hit a roadblock, I would run to Dr. Miltenberger's office or run to Rasha Baruni's office, who was my like uh, appointed doc student. And we would just brainstorm. And it was like, I know I always looked like a nervous wreck because I was like, okay, my thesis is going to sink into the ground. It's over. But we would always come up with a solution and it was just great. And, you know, I had my research assistants as well who would help me think of new ideas. So the collaboration is just the most fun part. So tell me a little bit about, you said that you had Rasha. 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 Mm -hmm. You said that you had, that she was your assigned doc student. That is not something that I am familiar with. Tell me what, what does that mean? What does that look like? <laughs> so when we are, um, when we pick our advisors and we get our advisor, we are in their lab. So I was in the Miltenberger lab. So it's me plus three or four other master's students. And then whatever students, whatever PhD students are under Dr. Miltenberger at the time or postdoc students that are assisting in Dr. Miltenberger's research. So we are all kind of like a family. If there were like four of us master students and there were two or three doc or postdoc students they would be assigned to like one of us so they'd be like our extra helper kind of like the interim between like us and dr millenberger so we could like had one extra person ask questions to one extra person to you know look over our stuff and help us out i found it really beneficial especially because the phd students are doing similar stuff to us they're doing research as well so I felt that their assistance was just so helpful in so many ways. So that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that with me. When I very first started my thesis project, 
I was in a larger lab with several stock students and master's students. But then my professor took a different job. Now I am in a different group with a professor who I had already been doing some research with, but as far as like official thesis and doc students, he is supervising one doc student and one thesis student. Uh, so it's just really interesting for me to hear about your experience because it's just different than what I've had. It sounds like you had a lot of support, both in terms of like mentorship and also research assistance. Is there anything else that was kind of interesting or unique or new to you when you were going through and designing your thesis and really taking charge on a project? I think the new part to me was really doing something from the ground up. Because, you know, in a lot of projects we do in school, there's a prompt or there's something we can kind of start off with. But this was really just from zero to 100, all, you know, thinking of everything. At USF in our second semester, we have to do a literature review for a different class, but it really helped us get a lot of research for our thesis and it helped us develop our intro for our thesis. So I thought that was really helpful that we had that. Just doing all that research is takes a long time because you want to make sure you hit not obviously you can't hit every single article. I was lucky that there was really limited research in what I was looking for, but it just, you know, it, it's a lot of research. I was fortunate enough to have assisted in a meta-analysis in my undergraduate career in that Awada lab. So I was used to, you know, reading like so many articles and parsing through the important information really quickly and jotting it down. But, you know, not everyone has that experience. I know some people really struggled and I struggled with it as well at times. But yeah, just building it from the ground up was very new to me, uh, but also very fun because you just make it completely your own. So that, along with the support, really helped. That's really awesome. Uh, and also, first time I did a lit review was for my thesis. And uh, oh, wow. I remember going to my advisor with a 40-page outline, and she was like, this is not <laughs> what I asked for. <laughs> nope. Like, I didn't know. I'm the same way. and But you can't make your intro 40 pages pages, you know, yeah. and that's the hard part. You do this lit review and you get all this research and then, okay, for the lit or for the intro, you got to cut it down by like 60% maybe. And you're yeah. just all that hard work. You're just erasing it line by line. So that's hard for me too, because I just, I feel like editing my own stuff in general is not easy, but mm -hmm. cutting stuff down, I find very difficult. And you know, what is important was what isn't that important. It's really hard to parse through that and figure that out. Luckily we had support in that as well. I also think it can be challenging, you know, when you're not doing a project with developmental disabilities, my, my thesis is on cheerleading. So I'm having to like explain things about cheerleading that you know, if it was developmental disabilities, I could assume my audience already knows. Mm -hmm. uh, and I imagine with video games, you probably had some similarities. Yeah, my participants were neurotypical and they were very experienced at playing the game that I was playing with them. The game was Among Us for the listeners. So, you know, I'm trying to deceive these kids that have played this game for hours and hours and know everything about it more than I do. It was just, you know, you're always trying to stay one or two steps ahead of them, but in a second, they could be four steps ahead of you. And it could just, you know, turn an assessment sideways if, you know, it's a day that we're collecting data and we really need to get this data on this day because it's been three days since the last probe and a kid, you know, goes, oh, I don't want to play anymore. Or, oh, you know, I lost that game. I'm not, who knows what 
kids say, you know, we had a lot of wrenches thrown at us, but we made it work. It makes sense that they wouldn't always have interest, their children. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like, I I didn't think about that. It it was rough because sometimes they'd be like, oh, I want to play Fortnite today, Mr. Henry. And I'd be like, oh, you know, my research is on Among Us. I'm sorry, dude, we can't do that today. But after, you know, after we're done with the study, I'll play with you. So it's, it was so hard sometimes. Something that I thought was funny was in the game Among Us, for those of you guys that don't know, it's a game where people are divided into teams of imposters and crewmates and the crewmates have to kill the imposters or no, the imposters have to kill the crewmates and the crewmates have to figure out who the imposters are. So it's kind of like that game Mafia, if you've ever played that. It's teamwork and figuring out who is who, but when you're the imposter, that is probably the most fun that you're going to have in the game because you know you're you're tricking people and you're doing whatever. So this one participant hadn't been imposter for like days. You know, we had met for however many game sessions and he was never the imposter. And the one day he got the imposter, he he got it and we knew who it was obviously because it's all of us against him because we're all in a group chat talking. So we always know who's who and that way we can really contrive literally everything. But he was the imposter and within like a couple seconds he went and did something really obvious that any other regular person playing the game would know that they were the imposter. And in order to make the game seem real, we had to call him out. We had to make him lose right then and there. And I felt so bad. And I really like toyed with it. Okay. Like, do we let it slide? But you know, what if he realizes that it's not, he's not really playing with strangers. He thinks that we're letting him win or do we make him lose and the game's over. He just rage quits and doesn't want to play. And we had to do that. And he actually did like rage quit. But he came back like a couple minutes later because his mom was like, oh, he still wants to play. He just kind of turned off his iPad. But that was like a really close one. And I felt so bad. But we had to do whatever we could to make the game session seem as real as possible. That's kind of interesting to have a little bit more context on the game because you're tr- you're trying to deceive the child about we're, we're not strangers. Mm-hmm. But because of the way the game is set up, they're looking for weird behavior. So exactly. like, that is probably even more hard than if you were not playing a game where that's part of the game. Exactly. There's, there were so many layers to it. I felt like I was in the Truman show at times and the participant was, you know, uh, Jim Carrey. And we were just like, okay, now turn on these lights and do this and that, um, which was really fun, but so stressful. I would like sometimes dread, like after a long day of work and I knew I had to do a game session with a participant. I just, it was so draining some days because you're, I was thinking of a million things at once still very rewarding and still very fun. That's so cool. So let's kind of shift a little bit to work. So what are your interests in practice? My interests in practice are kind of open right now. I've kind of tried many different things. I've done early intervention in clinics. I've worked in group homes where the ages of clients ranged from 21 to like 80, all men. Uh, I've worked with older females. I always thought that I wanted to work with adults. And after working with adults for a while, I was like, okay, I need a break. Cause I never thought I was a kid person. And now I'm like, okay, I'll take, you know, like preteens. So right now I'm kind of in the, I work with a lot of preteens between like eight to 13. And I find that's like my best demographic, I would say. Uh, I like doing a lot of social skills, you know, skill acquisition and work a lot with children with autism and ODD and ADHD, but I'm kind of everywhere in terms of my interests. I 
as you know, we're always taught to increase our scope of confidence and really try everything. And I kind of, when they used to tell us that, you know, in undergrad or masters, I was like, oh, you know, I know what I want to do. I don't care about that. But I'm so happy that I was able to do all those different things in masters and undergrad because, you know, once you graduate and you're a BCBA, you can't just, oh, I'll, you know, I'll try this client for a little bit and then, oh, you know, I don't like it. I'll go somewhere else because that is just ethically and morally not really okay to just pick up a client and then leave them. Whereas an RBT, you really have a lot more freedom to try many different things. Very true. And you'll never know till you try pretty much. I always thought because of my criminology background that I'd want the older adults or juvenile justice or really high intense behaviors like really high intense aggression or uh, unsafe sexual behaviors. And, you know, I work with clients who had those behaviors and I can't say that I want to do that <laughs> anymore because it's, you know, it's really hard and some people are able to do it. And I, not that I wasn't able to do it, but I definitely needed a break from that. But, you know, I wouldn't have known that unless I tried. If I never had that opportunity to work with those clients and I graduated and went straight to those clients, you're not, you're never stuck in this field, but it would have been way harder for me to leave and try something else. So you've kind of alluded to things that you did work-wise while you were in courses, getting your master's. Can you kind of get into a little bit of like the nitty gritty of what did that look like when you were getting your field work? Sure. At USF, we do the concentrated supervised field work. So yes. it's 1,500 hours, I want to say. I've like blocked it out of my memory because it was just so much. It's 1,500 hours and you have to get those hours to graduate. And USF is a two-year program for the master's program. So that's about 20 hours of work a week. So, you know, along with all the homework and projects that we're doing, you have to go to work when you're not at school. And I honestly found it really, really hard because if you're really tired from school, you can't really bring that into your work because then you're not going to be a good RBT. You're not going to have the patience that you need and vice versa. If you're really tired from being an RBT or being a BCABA, you could, your grades could fall because you're not going to have the energy to go home and study. So I had a lot of nights where I was up until 12 o'clock, which doesn't seem that late, I guess, but 12 o'clock studying because I worked all day and had to go home and do a project or get ahead on my thesis or whatever else I was doing. So I found that really difficult. Granted, there are online programs for ABA. USF has an online program, and I've heard that it's easier to manage the school and work aspect when you're doing the online program, but I teach their own. FIT is very similar. I also am doing the concentrated supervised field work. They break it up a little bit more. So like in your first year, you have fewer hours a week than you do in your second year and you like really hit it hard in the summer. So there's a little bit of variation based on your course load, but mm -hmm. um, no matter how you slice it, it's a lot to <laughs> do a thesis and 1500 hours and all of these things in two years. Exactly. And then there's the supervised hours versus unsupervised or restricted and unrestricted. So, you know, I was so stressed out my first semester, just trying to understand what those words even meant or how I would even possibly be able to do that. And I feel like because I was so stressed out my first two semesters, I really grinded up my hours. And then by the third semester, I was like, wait, I'm, I'm fine. What am I doing? And I was able to like calm down and not overwork myself so hard. 
which was good because that's when I was in the heart of my thesis. But it's like you said, during that summer, between the first and second year, you are working. I didn't take any vacations during my grad school career, which honestly, I can't say was the healthiest, but I definitely got all my hours and I graduated on time. So that was nice, but it's a grind. Master's programs are, you know, I always thought they'd be hard, but even if the material isn't that difficult, the amount of work is what is extremely difficult. And the time management is just, you have to really get on yourself about that. Everyone always has the same like words of advice of like, oh, you're going to go to a master's program. It's going to be really hard. You're going to have to work really hard. At least for me, I didn't understand that until I got into it. Me too. And I've always been a super try hard, you know, if I get a B, I'm freaking out type of person. So going to master's where you have to really try to get that A and really try to get your assignments in on time and do all this different stuff while you're working. It was a whole different ballgame. I can't even imagine the PhD program. I have some of my very good friends are at the USF PhD program and they're like, yeah, it's even harder. And I'm like, how? I can't even imagine doing that. You know, yeah, I, yeah it seems very hard. And I've, I'm sure that's for any PhD program as well. That is probably true. Sounds terrible. I don't know. Actually, <laughs> I have a professor who uh, she'll always say, she's like, you guys are almost done unless you really hate yourself and then you'll get a PhD and then you're not always almost done. Yep. And I thought I wanted the PhD as I was doing my thesis, especially because just like I said, all the collaboration and brainstorming I loved and, you know, even presenting at FABA, I was obsessed with it. You know, I started working and I was out of school for a couple months and I was like, okay, I, I don't know if I can go back maybe in a couple years. Um, whether it's a PhD in, in uh, behavior analysis, or I go for my original route and go the clinical psychology route, but I need some time to just work and not worry about anything else. I'm very much in the same boat. And I have some friends who are trying to get me out of that boat. Your friends want you to go for the PhD? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I commend you. You should, if you want to, I just feel like you have to have a really good reason. And when I was looking to become, uh, you know, looking to go to USF for my PhD. One of my big reasons was, oh, I want to be Dr. Chauvet, but that's not a good reason. That's like, what is that pride? Like that's not, or ego. That's a horrible reason to get your PhD and suffer through that. You have to really care about what you're learning. And I really do care about behavior analysis, but I couldn't find enough real reasons to go and get my PhD. But once I do, I'll go do it. I totally agree. And I think that that is a perfect way to put it. If you currently have enough good reasons to get a PhD, then do it. And if you don't, you just graduated with a master's. So the world of behavior analysis is open to you. All right. So after you graduated, did you take the BCBA exam? I did, but you have to wait till you get your diploma. So there's a long time you're waiting after you graduate versus when you're actually taking the exam, which I found to be really aggravating, but it's not anyone's fault. You know, that's just how it works. But yeah, I took it as soon as I could take it and I passed, thankfully, but it, it was hard. And I, you know, I, I was a very good student and I still found it pretty hard, but I was prepared for sure. We have to, at USF, we do the BDS modules. I don't know I if don't you know guys, I honestly could not tell you what BDS stands for, but it, it's a program that helps you study for the BACB or the BCBA exam. And essentially it's just 
a bunch of questions. You're just drilling questions for each section and it takes forever. It's like a six month testing or, you know, uh, the words are escaping me, whatever program helps you to study, but it was really helpful. I found uh, just doing those questions over and over again. So that was part of your program. It's not a part of USF, but they make us do it. Okay. Like we get, we get participation points for doing it. So yeah, yes and no, it is, it isn't, it isn't a part of our program, but I'm really happy that they did force us to do that because it's, it's honestly the best way to study. And this is like a free commercial for the BDS modules, but I found it to be very effective at retaining that information and feeling okay for the exam. That's good. There's a lot of test prep products out there. ABA tech has one. So that's what I'm familiar with. Um, okay. But that's really cool that they provided you with something and that you felt like it was helpful. For sure. Are you taking the exam anytime soon? I forgot to ask what year you're in. So I'm in this, well, I guess not start anymore because it's December. I graduate in July. <laughs> so I have some time. I'm not sure where I'm going after graduation. So I'm not sure yet if I will take the exam because I don't plan to stay in the ABA field. Um, I have a lot of interests, but none of them are really like where someone would know what BCBA means. So why pay for the letters if my employers don't care about that? You know, I'll have the MS. That's really interesting. So what are you trying to do instead? I really don't know. So I have a lot of interest in instructional design. I think safety is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think marketing is really fascinating. I just, I like it all. So I don't know exactly where I'm going, but I'll figure it out. I'm sure you will. And I, I mean, <laughs> having the ABA knowledge is helpful no matter what you do. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I'm going to stay in the field, um, but you know, if I go the clinical psych route, I think it'd be really cool to be a clinical psychologist with an ABA background. It's like the best of both worlds because, you know, Mm -hmm. those worlds aren't really the friendliest towards each other. I don't agree with that, but I, you know, in our studies, we learned that. I think that that'd be like the best of both worlds. You'd be like a powerhouse with both of those fields or, you know, having ABA in any field be very beneficial. For sure. I just this week had my first appointment with a new therapist. Nice. And I was explaining to her, I was like, you know, like this is what I'm in school for. And she was like, oh, I took all of the coursework to become a BCBA. And then obviously she switched and I don't actually know what her degree is because there's like so many different letters, LMFT or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one she is, but it was like, that. that's cool. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's great. So, Do you use yeah. ABA terminology when you're talking with her? Are you like, oh, I mean, you know, we've I was had one session. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, well, that's uh, good. Um, yeah. That's great. Okay. So you kind of hinted that maybe you don't have an answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, what do you see as being next for you? That's a really good question. Staying in the field for now, I think the biggest thing I'm working on is a good work-life balance, not bringing my work home with me. And knowing when to call it quits, I think is extremely hard for someone with anxiety in general. But, you know, when you're an analyst, everything kind of is on your shoulders because when you're an RBT and you have a parent that's upset, you go, oh, well, you know, I'm just doing what the analyst is telling me to do. Or you can ask the analyst, they might know better, but now that's me. So it's like all on my shoulders. So I find that 
pretty nerve wracking sometimes, you know, if a parent is having a crisis really late at night, I'll answer. But that means that I'm never not working essentially until I'm sleeping. And that's just, it's not healthy. The burnout happens so quick. Um, so I'm really trying to fight that. So I think what's next for me is bettering myself in terms of that, sticking it out for as long as I can. And that'll, you know, I'll be able to stick it out longer if I develop that skill. I've worked in clinics. I don't think I want to work in a clinic again. I think there's a lot of things about clinics that I find like unsavory, I guess. I think there's a lot of drama. I've been in multiple clinics as well. And I think some behavior is reinforced uh, that I don't think is the best. I I guess I'll just say that. But so uh, clinics are not for me. Uh, I really like in home and in school because I, I like being with the caregivers. I find if someone needs the motivation, being around a caregiver is really good motivation because they're watching you the whole entire time. So you better be doing your job as best as you can. There's no uh, room to not be working. So I really like that. And I think it's really helpful uh, for people that need that as well. But I'm, I've honestly been thinking about going into the school realm, like working for the school district and being an analyst for the school district. I feel like that'd be really cool. And that's something I haven't tried yet. So mm-hmm. I want to try it out and see how it goes. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, I, I think most school-based BCBAs are doing a lot of caregiver training, a lot of training the teachers, which I feel like throughout my experience, for me, that's the most important thing is yeah. caregiver training, whether it's staff at a group home, teachers, parents, because it's our job to get ourselves out of a job. We're not going to be with the family forever. And I, I, someone told me this, and I always say it to my families, my job is for you to fire me because mm-hmm. you don't need me anymore. And that caregiver training is so important for that because a A client can be perfect when I'm there, but I don't really care if they're perfect when I'm there. I I want them to be perfect when I'm not there. Because if a parent says, oh, whenever you come, they're doing great. But whenever you leave, it's rough. That to me is, okay, I have to do caregiver training because I'd rather them be rough when I'm here than when I'm not here. So I think experiencing that over and over again, I really want to go the school-based BCBA route and start there. I also think maybe this is a little tangent, but I'm just really passionate about it. Just like family training in general, it's like probably a bad word, but I, I worked in an in-home situation. We had two clients in the home, but there were more children in the home than just our clients. And when I started, my client never talked to any of their siblings. And when I left a year later, they were friends and it was the most rewarding thing to watch like this family come together. That's beautiful. And that is the best feeling. When you're in homes, you're doing family therapy sometimes. Like you're you're taking on a whole lot of roles sometimes, whether it's to build rapport or, you know, get for any number of reasons. You're doing a lot of things when you're in home that I don't think you do anywhere else. School kind of, yes, because you really have to build rapport with teachers in schools because uh, not to overgeneralize, but some teachers just don't want us there. You know, we are an extra set of eyes watching them and they might think it's really uncomfortable. They might think that we're judging them. I think maybe analysts before us or RBTs before us, I don't know if they scared off teachers and put this idea in their head by being judgy and not helping out. But like my my MO, whenever I go into a new setting is to build rapport with everyone as quickly as possible. I'm not going to give any corrective feedback until we have some sort of, some form of rapport because I'm not there to make someone feel bad about their job or tell them that they're doing something wrong. Even if I think they're doing it wrong, it's my job to teach them and to 
work together and it's never, oh, you should do this. It's, oh, we should do this. Why don't we try this? Little things like that are so important to me. Definitely. You've kind of sprinkled this all throughout, but do you have any specific advice for current or future students in behavior analyst analysis? I, I did say this before, but, and it's so cliche, but build your scope of confidence, like try everything you can and do it before it's too late. Not that there's ever an end route because you can always try it later on, just as I'm going to do very soon, but do it early on, work with demographics or clients that you think you might not like, because you're not going to know for sure until you actually work with them. And maybe you were right, but that's fine. If you were right, it's better to learn then than later on. So build your scope of confidence. If you're doing a thesis, write ideas whenever you can. It's supposed to be fun. It, it's There are times where it's not fun at all. It's really stressful and it's really hard, but you can make it fun. I had a blast doing my thesis at times and it's just so motivating. So I don't know, try to find fun wherever you can. And I, also I think, and this is another cliche, our field is very thankless. We work very thankless jobs and I've had to learn recently to not let that get to me and take whatever wins you can get. Even if a caregiver doesn't notice the win, if you notice it, that's all that matters. Take it and run with it and it'll help you sleep at night. <laughs> that's actually really good advice because I think yeah, as an RBT, at least I would notice that, but I think maybe there's like the little voice in the back of your head that's like, oh, but it'll get better. And I mean, if that's not realistic, that's important to know. Know now. Yeah, it's not to scare anyone off, but it's get your expect. You know, have these expectations that your work isn't going to always be noticed, but you should notice it yourself. We are behavior analysts. We are always observing behavior. So any little progress that you see is progress, and nothing happens overnight. Remember that. And if a, someone's getting upset that the changes aren't happening overnight, explain it to them. You know, we we all know how to explain. To parents, it's a really important part of our job is explaining our job in layman's terms to caregivers. Explain it and uh, do it, do whatever you can to make parents feel better and just keep going. I absolutely love that and feel like I have nothing to add because you just said that very well. So last question, probably, unless you say something really interesting and I'm like, oh, thought of a new one. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where do you think the field of behavior analysis is heading or where would you want it to go? I think clinically, we are bleeding into more and more fields, which I think is really good. It helps take away the stigma of ABA. Um, so I think that's really good. So the more that we bleed in, into different environments, the better. I think it's our job to make ourselves welcomed. Like don't go into a new environment and not be can't find the words, but just be cool, like be a good person and build rapport and make people understand ABA, make people like ABA because ABA, we, you kind of have to put a pretty bow on it because ABA at its very core is very basic and it, some people don't like that. I've had parents tell me, okay, well, this is just dog training. It's, you know, it's clicker training in the back of my head. It's like, okay, yes, maybe, but isn't that everything? Like I, I'm a monkey. I work and get bananas. And that's my, you know, it's, it's the same thing. So it's our job to kind of dress it up in a bow and make it look really good. So we are accepted in more places and just do a good job so that it helps the field and all. I think uh, research wise, I would love to see ABA go into technology, using different sorts of technology to assist with the research, like virtual reality, 
anything online. I think it's such an untapped well, any safety skills that has to do with social media, texting, um, strangers, anything like that, Date online dating, who knows? But I was shocked, maybe even a little disappointed to see how little research there was while I was doing my thesis. So I'd really like to see more of that. What about you? What Where do you think it's going to go? Um, I think when you're looking at OBM and how applicable the science is to literally everything. And so part of me is like, I think it's going to go everywhere, but we may not see it or be aware of it because behavior analysts are being hired in, in human resources. And so then they're you know, identifying as HR with a behavior background as opposed to a BCBA or a behavior analyst. Um, so I think we we may not be aware of everywhere that the field is going, but I also, you know, my my thesis is in cheerleading safety. In in my heart, I, I want to see athletes protected. I would love to see more in that sense. That's really interesting. And it's super important, it, safety skills, you know, that's, I love, safety skills in ABA and I think it's possible and I think that is going to happen I, I do think we're like you said we're bleeding into more settings without people really like quote unquote knowing people don't have to necessarily know that we don't have to say oh just so you know that was ABA because it doesn't matter we don't need a tutor on horn we should just be happy that it's going that way and it's going that route and I think as you know thankfully society becoming more accepting and less stigmatizing about people with any form of disability whether it's intellectual physical developmental and i think as society moves in that route aba will uh, also become more popular for sure all right so thank you so much for listening to the student perspective series and thank you to henry for being here for this interview Make sure you join us next time we upload this series at least once a month if not more often And the Opera Innovations podcast is every Wednesday.